So, are we sitting comfortably? What I would like to reflect on this evening is dukkha. (laughs) Great. Some of you don't know this word, but when you come to understand it, you will understand why the chuckles arise. (laughs) So this is a word, a, a Pali word that I'm using quite purposefully, simply because there really is no adequate word in English uh, that really describes this. So hopefully by the end of the evening we will all have such a fully clear, deep comprehension (laughs) of this word that we will adopt it into our vocabulary. I think if we really are to understand the landscape of mindfulness and insight, we are asked to understand dukkha if we're going to really understand and really deepen our capacity for compassion, it is related to our understanding of dukkha. And in this tradition, surely it's said, you know, that the awakening of our heart and mind is really rooted in the understanding of dukkha. Now, this Pali word dukkha is sadly often mistranslated or inadequately translated as suffering. And, you know, the moment you hear that translation, your heart just sinks, doesn't it? (laughs) It's kind of like we hope for something a little cheerier this evening. But this is a translation that, uh, you know, that really doesn't uh, uh, do justice to what dukkha actually means. I think of dukkha as the unarguables. The unarguables. The non-negotiable threads that run through all of our lives from the moment of our birth to the moment of our death. It's the thread that runs through the lives of all of those that we love and all of those that we struggle with and the myriad of beings that we will never meet. All events, all experiences, the lovely, the unlovely, are actually tinged with dukkha. There are no exemptions. There's no get-out-of-jail-free cards. There's no exceptions. It's so interesting to me how often in our life, we, in the midst of difficulty, we think, you know, every time we say this is not fair, It's like saying, I should have an exemption. Um, So much of our lives can be dedicated actually to seeking that exemption from dukkha, rearranging the conditions of our lives as much as we can to protect ourselves from life's realities, constructing over and over again these kind of illusory islands these illusory islands of, that we feel we've finally arrived at where things are in order, things are predictable, things are safe, things are under control, I'm getting what I want, eh? only to find over and over again those islands dissolving. Now, when we first hear this, and I think when many people first hear the word dukkha, it, it sounds a little grim. Sounds a little depressing. Sounds even a little deterministic. But of course, that is only from the standpoint of fear and aversion. Seen through the lens of insight and compassion, we actually discover that it is possible for us to put down our argument with the unarguables to release ourselves from the agitation of, of the endless trying to negotiate with, how th- with the way things actually are. And somehow in aligning our hearts and minds with the simple truths of each moment, discovering in this the, the depths of compassion and kindness and understanding and freedom inwardly 
that are in truth the only island we can really stand upon in the midst of all things. Now, understanding dukkha is really the context for the entire um, path of meditative development. But understanding dukkha is also the context, of course, for mindfulness-based applications. You know? When people come to many of you who are in the caring professions or teaching mindfulness, you know, when people come to you, it's often because they've come face-to-face with dukkha. And they're looking for an understanding. And, and it's often those moments when no negotiation seems possible. You know, and looking what to do with that space when you hit up against the way life actually is and you realize actually there's some other means must be available other than flight and fear and abandonment. We could say that understanding dukkha, I think, is the embarkation point of the path because that's the point actually when we really meet life at times in in its rawness at times um, that's when we can find the willingness to turn towards our lives to investigate them and you know there are of course a lot of moments in our lives when we just don't want to know about dukkha we just don't want to know about it and, or to understand it. And, and we see the many ways, you know, here too, I'm sure, where, you know, flight becomes the mechanism of response to dukkha. I am out of here. You know, we may not have packed our bags, but there's a lot of ways to be out of here. Mm-hmm. But when those moments of flight we start to see, they really mean that we're we're limiting our access to the understandings that liberate our hearts and lives and the understandings that really lead to the end of fear and isolation. And I think sometimes really the the real starting point of this path is when when we, we start to be willing to ease that flight mechanism and actually turn towards what is. So I want to look at at different dimensions of dukkha. And the first dimension of dukkha that is often spoken about in the text is is quite often referred to simply as dukkha dukkha. (laughs) Sounds like an ice cream flavor, doesn't it? (laughs) Dukkha dukkha. This is the pain of pain. The suffering of painful feelings in our bodies and in our minds. And we will all surely come to know this domain of dukkha. And matter of fact, it's probably not an abstract theory for many of you right now in this moment. It's a felt experience. Many of you right now may be actually experiencing dukkha dukkha. The aching back, sore knee, the chronic illness. The pain that doesn't go away. Some heartaches. What we do really see is is our bodies, when we turn towards the actuality of what's going on here, our bodies surely will age, they will experience pain and illness, and there are so many external conditions in this world that affect the well-being of our bodies, and quite frankly, much of this we can't control. My definition of aging is that the periods of time when everything works well at the same moment, they get shorter and shorter. (laughs) You ever notice that? I mean, you may only be in your 30s, you know. Oh, you wake up in the morning. (laughs) The average age for most people developing a chronic illness in America is 56 some much earlier than this. The average age when a person looks in the mirror and starts seeing their father or mother looking back at them is actually 32. (laughs) We see dukkha dukkha within ourselves and actually when you look around you, you look around this room, actually you're pretty sure no one's exempt. And we've probably all lost people we loved. We've all known sorrow of grief, the pain of pain, 
dukkha, dukkha. And in this life, we are asked to face our own mortality, knowing that the only certainty about our death is when. And there are a lot of things that we can do with dukkha, dukkha, and I'll go into these much later in more detail, although you could probably come up here and give the talk, actually, about the things we do with dukkha, dukkha. And some of our reactions, of course, are really not so skillful. You know, we might buy shares in the cosmetic industries that tell us that aging is optional. I came across that one recently. Aging is optional. <laughs> Imagine. It's cosmetic companies doing really well, by the way. We might even, you know, there are those who go to the extremes of deep freezing their bodies for some future moment when science hopefully is going to discover a way to make death optional. Mostly we try to forget about dukkha dukkha. And we live in a world that very much collaborates in that forgetting. It's almost as if we have a collective commitment to forgetfulness to trying to find consolation, to trying to find reassurance. Sometimes we forget just through busyness. If we keep ourselves moving, if we keep ourselves busy and not be still, perhaps we can not really turn towards the reality of our lives. Sometimes we keep ourselves busy rearranging conditions so we feel as armored and protected as we can be against, against life. And, you know, our avoidance techniques are not always unsuccessful. We have to recognize this. You know, sometimes we're successful temporarily. Yeah? We can have a moment of dukkha dukkha, you know, and really somehow face, you know, uh, face the realities of our life. And, and there's a lot of mechanisms we develop for forgetting. You know, we go to the fridge, we turn on the TV, you know, we'll, we'll find, pick up a phone. And sometimes they're successful until, again, the kind of uncontrollable and the unpredictable bursts forth again into our life in illness, in grief, in frailty, in pain. Now, this path actually asks us not to wait for the dramas and crisis in our life to prepare for, for meeting life the way it is. I know John Kabat-Zinn once said, you know, the time to weave your parachute is not when you're about to jump out of the plane. Mm-hmm. It's a present moment recollection, you know, that runs through this teaching, you know, to remember the fragile, the innate vulnerability of our bodies, a reality that's part of all of our lives. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of loveliness that goes on in the body. Of course there is. Moments of great delight within the body, moments of pleasure, sensual pleasure. Of course, this is also true. But so is aging, sickness, and death. And it's a kind of sati almost, a mindfulness, a remembering. In fact, you know, in, in, in many Asian countries, a lot of monasteries begin their days in this way, you know, chanting the recollections, the remembering of, of change, of 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 life and of death. And, you know, I I don't see that it makes anybody particularly more gloomy or more morbid or or more depressed. Perhaps, you know, it's really there to remind us to live this life fully, to foster the resilience and the courage and the compassion of heart and mind that plants us so firmly in the midst of our life with all its joys and sorrows. In fact, you know, I think the recollection of of our mortality is so encouraged because it it might really radically change the way of our lives. It might radically change the way of our life to live as if there wasn't a tomorrow. The second domain of dukkha is sometimes referred to as Viparanama dukkha, and you don't need to remember that. It's the, unsatisf- the inherent unsatisfactoriness in, in the reality of change and conditions. Now, this too is not news for us, is it? The wonderful sitting 
that we hope is going to last. Where did it go? The beautiful sunset and the sun shining replaced by the clouds and the rain. The people in our lives who somehow have changed in ways that's difficult for us to accept. The many disappointments many of us do meet in this life. Losing the people we love. And then there's this whole big domain of this domain of dukkha, which is sometimes referred to as the malice of inanimate objects. (laughs) Your computer breaks down. The toaster doesn't work. The train is late. Your car won't start. The malice of inanimate objects. (laughs) And we really see that every moment in our lives, in truth, we stand on shifting sands of change and uncertainty and this world of conditions which is inherently unstable. Now, this kind of dukkha of change and conditions, this is not a value judgment. It's not about good or bad or right or wrong. It simply describes the nature of all things that are born, all phenomena. And and actually, the Buddha often describes the real understanding of this domain of dukkha, of change and conditions, as the most significant of all insights. You know, he says, just like the elephant's footprint in the forest is the biggest of all the animal's footprints, this is the insight that that has the most power to change our lives. Now, it's interesting in this domain of dukkha, of change and conditions, because it's not emotionally neutral, is it? But sometimes we welcome, really welcome, this domain of dukkha, particularly when it benefits us. You know, our noisy neighbor moves away, the hum of the fridge shuts off, the end of the root canal, I'm so happy. You know, the obsessive story goes away. And those moments, we become enthusiastic advocates of impermanence and changing conditions, you know. (laughs) This is good stuff, you know. Thank goodness for impermanence, you know. We would write it on our foreheads, you know. (laughs) A lot of moments when that's not so, isn't it? It's also not emotionally neutral. The changes we don't welcome, that we meet with fear and aversion. Now, within us, I think we can probably recognize at times this embedded quest to find stability, security, and safety. This is quite an understandable quest. And the way that we can engage with a lot of behavioral mechanisms to manipulate change and and to avoid what we don't want. And and at times, you know, in in the face of change, change and conditions, we find ourselves engaging a good deal of clinging and because grasping is mostly the mechanism we use to deny change. It's mostly the mechanism we use to deny change. And yet we see in our experience that that grasping and clinging, our endeavors to make the world stand still for us in the way that we want it to be, are mostly ineffective. Because in a very real way, this actuality of change and unstable conditions actually makes a mockery out of grasping, doesn't it? Just makes a mockery out of clinging. And, and, yet, and so we, sometimes we get so bewildered by that and are left with such disquiet and unsettledness when somehow our clinging is not being effective. I think the, the unsatisfactoriness, this kind of existential unsatisfactoriness inherent in the nature of change and unstable conditions, you know, it's really important to reflect on what that means for us because this does, it's not life-denying. It's not life-denying. In many ways, it's life-embracing. Clinging and grasping is far more life-denying. It's actually life-embracing, but it has huge implications, this inherent instability and, and change, because actually the implication is that we're not actually going to find any lasting consolation or refuge or safety within that which cannot be grasped. I mean, there's one discourse where the Buddha put it, he said, 
why would I think, you know, knowing that I am a being subject to aging, sickness, and death, seek to find refuge in that which is also subject to aging, sickness, and death? He said, this doesn't make any sense. Now, at times we, we, we have a lot of difficulty, I think, accepting this. And, and, and part of what happens, I think, in this culture is when we fail to control our world and fail to control conditions and fail to control change, we often do translate, actually, that into an emotional self-judgment, thinking, I just haven't tried hard enough then we kind of launch ourselves forward into more agitation, more trying to control. Compassion is born of of this, this quality of grace, I think, of being able to embrace this inherent instability and change. There's a couple of poems I want to read to you. One says, life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up living still. There's another piece from a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. He said, think about death and impermanence for a long time. Once you know your mortality deeply, you will not find it hard to put aside harmful actions, nor difficult to do what is beneficial. After that, meditate for a long time on love and compassion. Once these fill your heart, you will no longer find it hard to act for the benefit of others. Now, what would our life actually look like to live in the spirit, in the light of that understanding of change and instability. So to, to know that so deeply that it's really embedded in our bones, that informs our every word and our every thought and our every choice, shaping how we live our lives. You know, in the teaching stories of the Buddha, I think we, we see again and again these teaching stories of, of turning points in the life of Siddhartha. And one of the stories, is, of course, many of you will be familiar with, is the story of, of Siddhartha leaving his father's palace and beginning what he later came to call a noble search or a noble quest, a search for an enduring inner peace and freedom, a way to live his life fully rooted in responsiveness and compassion and without fear. And the story really describes that profound understanding that Siddhartha came to when he realized that all his status and his comforts and his distraction and his roles were actually really not going to ultimately protect him from the winds of change and instability or provide any kind of lasting refuge. Now, we can have a very mixed relationship to these first two domains of dukkha, the pain of pain, it's not, and, and the the dukkha of instability and uncertainty. It's not news to us that our bodies are fragile and will age. It's not news to us that we can't control the world of conditions in, in such a way that we only have an endless stream of pleasant sensations and experiences. It's not news that, that, that our very life and our personal world really is vulnerable to shifting conditions and change and could crumble in a moment. On one level, we, we know this. We see this, don't we? We know this. This is, this is not news. But I think often we, we also see that this knowing somehow on a moment-to-moment level is not always guiding the way that we live our lives or the way that we interface with the world. And I think many of us in our lives, and certainly in this path, 
at times encounter a considerable amount of, of, of dissonance. You know, the, the gap between what we know and how we live. We know we can't grasp the ungraspable. We try anyway. We know we can't control the uncontrollable, but we heroically strive to do anyway. We know we're not exempt from impermanence, yet we find it difficult to embrace that reality at times with grace and courage. Now, the story of of Siddhartha leaving his palace is really a story about him leaving the palace of his illusions and his palace of pretending. Now, dissonance is uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's not a negative discomfort. I think the awareness of dissonance, it's not something, it's not certainly not something to judge. I think the awareness of dissonance is actually a positive discomfort, a wholesome discomfort. Because it what makes us question is what makes us stretch, it what makes us investigate, and, and it sets us forth on a path. Certainly we can turn dissonance into a whole narrative of self-blame and self-judgment, but that's not what's encouraged in this path. It's actually to look at the creative discomfort of dissonance, the gap between what we know and understand and our actualities. Because I think that that creative discomfort leads us to question, begin to find our own turning points in our hearts and lives where where we kind of find the willingness to leave our own palace of illusions. And that doesn't mean that we enter into some bleak world, you know, that, that's just grim and, and, and you know, we, we're kind of dissolving in, in a puddle of despair. That's not what it means. It's not a denial of love. But I think this investigation of the way things are may be actually what frees us to live fully, to love wholeheartedly, and to put down our arguments with the unarguables, putting down so much of our inner tension and, and, and agitation. But more than this, I think it's really an encouragement really to begin to that search of finding refuge within our own hearts. This path is so much concerned with that inwardly generated confidence, stability, equanimity, that inwardly generated joy and sense of freedom. The biggest, most radical teaching of the Buddha is that we do not need to be hostage to the world of conditions. The genuine refuge lies in our own understanding. Which brings us to the third domain of dukkha that I want to talk about tonight, if you haven't had enough already. And this one is called, referred to as Sankara or Sankata dukkha. You don't need to remember that either. So the first two domains of dukkha, the pain of pain and the the dukkha of... um, change and uncertainty in the world of conditions. As I've mentioned, these are pretty unavoidable and essentially unarguable. But the third domain of dukkha is one that can be understood and transformed. And this is the heart of all insight meditation. It's equally the foundation of all mindfulness-based applications. So Sankara dukkha or Sankata dukkha is our personal, emotional, and psychological world of construction around the first two domains of dukkha. Okay, you got that? It is the world of our reactivity. Our likes, our dislikes, our our fears, our anxieties, our aversions, our judgments, our views, our shoulds, our jealousies, our resentments. Sankara dukkha is agitation. It is the agitation of our narratives, our stories, our views, our stories of self and our stories of other. uh, Sankara dukkha is all of our narrative about how we should be 
about how other people should be, about how the world should be. Sankara Dukkha is concerned with our preoccupations, our ruminations, our obsessions. And Sankara Dukkha is also the world of our self-construction, the way that our view of self is being shaped moment to moment by the reactions that arise and by what is clung to. Now, perhaps the best illustration of Sankara Dukkha is in the teaching story of the two darts that many of you will be familiar with. Um, And as awkward as this story is in its language, it really describes a primary focus in the path of liberation and in secular mindfulness teachings. So, awkward language, and I hope I can read it because nobody else could read my writing. (laughs) When an untaught being is touched by a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve. They lament and beat their breast, weep and become distraught. Thus they experience two kinds of feeling, a bodily and an emotional or mental feeling. It is as if a person were pierced by an arrow And following the first injury, they are hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feelings caused by two arrows. But in the case of a well-taught person, when they are touched by a painful feeling, they will not grieve and lament. They will not beat their breast and worry, nor become distraught. It is as if... It is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily feeling, but not an emotional reaction. It is as if that person was pierced by one arrow, but then was not hit by the second arrow following the first. So that person experiences a feeling caused by a single arrow only. Now, this passage refers primarily to body experience and all of the reactions that can happen in relationship to body experience. But of course, it's bigger than that. We see this very clearly in the body, and it's often why the body is given so much emphasis. The way that we see this Sankara dukkha, this pattern, patterning dukkha arising. You stub your toe. It hurts. doesn't matter how mindful a person you are or how good a meditator or not. It will hurt. And sometimes we then just see the second arrow winging our way, you know. Why am I so mindless? You know, who put that rock there? You know, I'm going to sue this place, you know. And we see the whole history of mindlessness in our past arising and all the mistakes we've made and the way life is so unfair and all the injustices we've faced. There we are. We have a pain in our back. It's the first arrow. It's there. It's real. It hurts. And then we see the second arrows starting, starting to arrive. You know? I hate this. I want it to go away. How can I fix it? An eternal future of pain. You walk through the kitchen in the morning and you smell garlic cooking. You know? For some people that is painful, by the way. We talked about how perception is colored. And then we see the second arrow coming, you know, the insensitive cooks, they don't know how to cook for yogis, you know, you know, I'm going to sort them out. It's not on the, in the body, this is in every area of our life, we lose someone we love. Grief is the first arrow. And we can move into the world of anxiety and rumination. We may smile at someone and not get that smile returned. You know, and and we see the second arrow just flying in, you know. Why am I so unlovable? That person's very cold, you know. Nobody's ever loved me. And we get lost in this story. We find ourselves sitting, you know, for a year, you know, people sat in a construction site here. It was the first arrow at times, you know. It was kind of noisy. And and the second arrow actually came in surprisingly rarely 
But I remember in Thailand, you know, you imagine quiet monasteries, forget it. There are always construction sites. You know, and I remember sitting in Thailand, you know, once in this monastery, the scaffolding was going up, the radios were playing, the dogs were barking, you know, people were yelling. It, it was just chaos, you know. And, and I went to the abbot and I said, how do you expect me to meditate in the middle of all of this? He looked at me so bewildered. <laughs> I said, how can you not? <laughs> Take this second arrow business seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, the primary work of mindfulness is exploring and understanding the possibility of severing and cutting the link between the first arrow and the second arrow. The Buddha put it simply I teach just one thing that there is dukkha and that there is the end of dukkha. So when he said that, clearly he's not speaking about the end of death or the end of change or the end of instability. He's speaking about the possibility of the end of emotional anguish, the end of psychological torment. Mindfulness is about cutting the links between these primary experiences in our physical and emotional world as well as in our life and the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion as was referred to in the instructions the other day because these underlying tendencies of craving or aversion are the triggers not the pleasant and the unpleasant they are partially the triggers for the underlying tendencies but the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion are the triggers for our narratives and stories to be built that lead to distress and anxiety and despair now, mostly these emotional tendencies, although they may have served a purpose at one time in our evolutionary history, today mostly the tendencies of a craving and aversion really only serve to leech joy and peace and spaciousness from our lives and take us to places very far from where we want to be. Craving is a sankhara. It is a pattern. It is a formation and it's also an agitation. Now, I think we can feel this very clearly in our own experience. I remember, you know, in a retreat some years ago, and I think some of you have heard me tell this story, that, you know, someone told me about how they'd spent this day just lost in wanting and the agitation of wanting. They were in front of the notice board. They were reading the tea packets. They were reading the housekeeper's manual. And then they, actually, <laughs> uh, they got to the point where they were reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. <laughs> and the first instruction on the fire extinguisher said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. <laughs> And they said, suddenly, it just clicked. <laughs> you know? But we can see the, the impulse of craving, can't we? I mean, you know, if you've noticed, you walk in the dining room, you look, what's, you know, what's for lunch, you know? I mean, we can see the impulse of it. It rises so quickly. But we also see how this very impulse of craving is really to be held in the grip of a feeling of insufficiency. So it's to be held in the grip of this feeling of, of not enough, of, of def deficiency, of deprivation in some way. And it leads us to go out and to prowl the world, you know, for more pleasant sensations, more pleasant sights, more pleasant input, more, more, more pleasant experience. We sometimes crave to be a certain kind of person. To be the kind of person who only has a particular kind of experience. Crave to be the kind of person who only has the experiences of appreciation and praise, success, pleasure. We crave to be the meditator who only has a good meditation. We crave not to be the kind of person who experiences blame, shame, judgment, failure, anxiety, loss. We crave not to be the meditator who has that really terrible meditation. 
And it's an agitation, isn't it, that triggers so much narrative. Craving triggers so, so much narrative, so many thoughts and so many behavioral patterns. You know, part of the behavioral pattern of craving is to fix things to find solutions, to arrange and rearrange the conditions of our life and our mind, to fit in our, into our idea of how we should be, <coughs> how our life should be. And there's so little happiness and peace in that compulsion, and it just keeps feeding that sense of insufficiency. Aversion is an equally powerful trigger, an equally powerful trigger for narrative, an equally powerful trigger for agitation. Such a big extended family in aversion, isn't there? Rumination, obsession, blame, shame, fear, ill will, judgment. You know, we could go on and on and on and on. And what's happening there, instead of that attraction impulse, it's the pushing away impulse. Instead of the approach impulse, it's actually the resistance impulse. And, you know, here we recoil. We, we don't know how to embrace the first two domains of dukkha. We don't know how to embrace the pain of pain. We don't know how to embrace the reality of change and instability, of not being able to secure the world that we, way that we want to be. So we push life away. We flee. We abandon. It's a self-perpetuating habit. And we see, too, how, I mean, there's not much happiness and aversion, is there? There's not much sense of peace or joy. Instead, there's a sense of agitation. There's not so much compassion. So what are we doing with mindfulness? We're actually starting to look at these links, you know, between the realities of what is happening and our reactions to them. And we're turning towards what we're prone to abandon. We're learning to meet this moment with a sort of gentle curiosity and to stand upright in the midst of dukkha, in the midst of life and all that it brings. Yes, there's sadness, there is grief. There's lovely and there's a joy and, the, and there's a delightful and there's the unlife, unlovely. And we may be able to find the way to embrace this world with a kind of unwavering courage and unwavering wakefulness. And that's a training. It's a process that we do in bite-sized pieces. It's a moment-to-moment practice. I mean, sometimes we just sense the little whispers and the little surges of aversion and craving without being lost and over, or overwhelmed. The Buddha said, put it so simply, that dukkha is to be understood. How we respond to dukkha really is in our hands. As I mentioned, I think in my first talk, you know, in the early words, earliest words in the Satipatthana Sutta, speaks about breathing in, calming the formations, calming the patterns, calming the sankharas, breathing out, calming the sankharas, the patterns, establishing mindfulness in the body, in the breath. Excuse me, always establishing this present moment recollection. And this is swimming against the the tide of the habits of craving and aversion. Now, I'm sure we're all aware that by very powerful ways that craving and aversion are implicated in constructing the world of our moment and so many of the narratives we find ourselves engulfed by. But we're probably also aware how the Sankaras are, are implicated in building the narrative of me, the narrative of who I am in any moment. Sometimes it's a narrative of insufficiency, of fear, of contractedness, of incompleteness, of unworthiness. In my understanding, craving and aversion can only ever build stories of incompleteness, the incomplete self, and the many second arrows of of judgment, I need, I want to be, I can't bear, I'm a failure, I'm unlovable, I'm anxious, I'm not good enough. The, the, the craving aversion are always building these stories of imperfection, <coughs> of limitation. And, you know, craving aversion are sankharas, actually, that in turn and in turn trigger and shape other sankharas, agitation, restlessness, <coughs> doubt, numbness, fear, 
And of course, the biggest sankara that shaped, that craving and aversion shaped, is the agitation as the sankara of me. Now, have you noticed that the sense of, of me um, is built primarily around the, um, the, what we perceive to be the imperfect, the incomplete, what we fear or what we feel to be lacking. Have you noticed that the sankara of me very rarely builds itself around the skillful or the, around generosity or kindness or compassion? You know, if you have a moment in the day of genuine kindness, you know, genuine generosity or gentleness or, uh, you know, uh, you don't generally then spend the next hour worrying about it. (laughs) It doesn't do that. It doesn't shape that kind of sense of me. You know, we, we don't spend the next hour kind of thinking, you know, oh, why was I so generous? You know, I need to be so generous. You know. <laughs> really a schmuck for being so generous, you know. We don't do it. We actually see how much the sense of me is actually built around grasping hold of, of what we either feel we don't have or what we feel we need to get rid of. This is a very interesting observation in my mind. It's hard to find a solid or substantial eye outside of the sankara and patterns of craving and aversion. And a lot of self-blame, of course, can be added to this, you know. Um, now, we tell ourselves, of course, that we should let go of our cravings. We should let go of our aversions. We should let go of our narratives, our stories, our obsessions, our construction. And we get a little desperate when we find that our efforts and our commands around letting go don't seem to work. And I... I person think you really should, we really shouldn't be surprised. It's almost as if we're imagining that one sankara is going to let go of another sankara. <laughs> Tell me how that one works. <laughs> Maybe we take it all a little bit less personally. Hmm? Maybe there's an impossibility in one sankara letting go of another sankara. Maybe there's a different pathway that we're really being asked to follow here. You know, we keep imagining this, illus- this illusory autonomy eye that, that's got this power to, to let go. I to read you something oh, by Paul Brox. He's a neuropsychologist. I don't know if you've ever come across his book, Into the Silent Land. It's, it's quite lovely. He's actually spent his entire professional life trying to find the I, the self. He wrote, he says, we have an illusion of unity. The mental processes underlying our sense of self, feelings, thoughts, memories are scattered through different zones of the brain. There's no special point of convergence, no cockpit of the soul, no soul pilot, They come together in a work of fiction. A human being is a storyteller. The self is a story. That's not to say our lives are fiction. We are embedded in a universe with physical and moral dimensions where every thought and action splinters into a million consequences. Who tells the story of self? That's like asking who thunders the thunder or rains the rain. It's not so much a question of us telling the story as the story telling us. Breathing in, calming the formations. Breathing out, calming the formations. I think a life of true peace is a life of putting down our arguments with the unarguables, aligning our hearts, aligning our understanding with the realities of change and uncertainty. It's not always such a scary place to inhabit. Putting down, learning, learning to release, or that, that it can be released, the agitations of anxiety and aversion and craving and selfing, these begin to calm. As with insight, we understand the, the natural laws governing all existence rather than denying them. And we have no unexpected losses. We have no demands for certainty. Surprise doesn't leave us despairing and afraid and floundering. But actually, in aligning our hearts with the way things are, we, we do discover a, a deeper inner refuge, a mind and a heart that can be truly 
a friend. And that is what gives birth, I think, to a truly embodied life. I want to end, if I can, with a poem came across recently from a book of poems called, called A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe by Fernando Pessoa, who actually writes poetry apparently in about 12 different languages. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well, and there may be a castle, and there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road, that's before the bend. I look only at the road before the bend, because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That's for them. That for them is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. Take just a moment quietly together and then Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.